Hi, this is the Reverend Andrew Christensen. You're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. We are a Christ-centered, reformationally-minded podcast that explores the history and theology of the Christian church. This podcast originally started as a forum for discussing the developmental history of Christian thought, what is often called historical theology. And it has since grown into an ecumenical team of hosts, myself, Stephen Burnett, Pastor Charlie Beeman, and the Reverend James Rickenbaker. We're all interested in the past, present, and future of the church. We share a commitment to the central place that grace has in the message of the good news, a message we feel often gets lost in our day and age, sometimes in religion itself. A message that is of God's goodwill toward us is echoed in the following words from St. Paul. This is a true saying, and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief one. I pray that the discussions in our episodes, whether casual or scholarly, can speak to how the story and witness of Christians from our past can comfort and strengthen us for today. God bless. Good morning, evening, afternoon, everyone. We have a special guest uh, today for this episode on Friedrich Schleiermacher. Our guest is Dr. Jacqueline Mourinho. Uh, she is one of our current day's experts on uh, the 19th century theological giant, I would say, uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher. And uh, Dr. Mourinho's areas of expertise include Schleiermacher, philosophy of religion, and also the work of Immanuel Kant. She has been Published in many different academic journals on all of those subjects and more. Uh, she's also the author of the book, The Transformation of the Self in the Thought of Friedrich Schleiermacher, published by Oxford University Press in 2008. And she was also the editor and a contributor for the uh, Cambridge Companion to Friedrich Schleiermacher. She's a professor of philosophy at Purdue University. She holds a PhD from Yale University and a Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School. And we welcome her to the show. I'm honored to have such an accomplished uh, scholar on the show. So how are you doing today? Um, <laughs> I know you're well. for the show. But <laughs> for having me on the show. Yeah, you're welcome. We, I mean, thank you for being here. Um, you are, uh, so I guess to kind of set the... Um, set the scenery for Friedrich Schleiermacher because of a lot of our listeners, I imagine, uh, maybe, maybe unfamiliar with, with him or, you know, there's, there's a lot in ministry and theological circles who have heard the name, but, you know, don't know much beyond that. Um, or maybe a certain narrative about him, but, um, to kind of set the scene, we have to kind of dig a little bit into the philosophical, uh, milieu, I guess you could say of which he, Mm-hmm. Uh, arose from. And so uh, you are also, as we said in our intro, a scholar on Immanuel Kant. In fact, uh, you, uh, I, I think that the bulk of, of your scholarship has really been on that topic. And and um, I guess uh, it kind of gave us a, a basic, um, what was Kant's imp- 
importance to philosophy? Um, I know it's a big question, but what, but uh, kind of just what did he basically? Uh, I know, I know it's 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 kind of said to be a Copernican revolution in a sense, the way Kant changed philosophy and it had effects, just ripple effects on the world, on theology and everything. But um, so, so uh, what does Kant bring to the picture? I guess <laughs> I could ask. He an, an enormous amount, and I I could speak the whole hour on on Kant's influence. Um, when we talk about the Copernican revolution in philosophy, um, this is basically has to do with Kant's first critique. And, um, and the idea here is um, Kant is asking how are synthetic a priori judgments possible? So he's asking how can we know, for instance, the that the judgment every event has a cause is true. And basically what he's going to say we will have no, we will make no progress in metaphysics if we think that the mind must conform to the objects. This is Locke's view, right? That the mind is a kind of tabula rasa and um, that the mind then conforms to the objects. On the other hand, if we think that the objects must conform to the mind, um, then we can give an account of how these synthetic a priori judgments are possible. And this is because the mind itself um, is, contributes these concepts or categories through which all the data of experience is synthesized. And if we know what those are, right, then we can give this account of the necessary conditions for the possibility of experience. We can talk about those categories that are necessary. So basically the change is going to be that we focus on the contributions of the knowing subject to experience. Um, and that's, so that's the Copernican revolution. And in, as he's working this out in the first critique, um, there's going to be some passages in the B deduction of the transcendental deduction that's going to be very important for Schleiermacher. Um, and one of these passages is going to be this, I, this, it begins with the I think must be able to accompany all my representations. And this is, begins with the idea of self-consciousness, right? Um, and so this is where Kant, uh, Schleiermacher um, and a lot of the people that receive Kant's first critique are going to be working, they're going to be working with this idea of the nature of consciousness, of the immediate consciousness and of self-consciousness. Okay. Um, so that's the theoretical side of Kant. The, um, Kant is also very important in practical philosophy, um, and that is, of course, this idea um, of the categorical imperative. And for Kant, religion is something that comes after you have an ethical commitment, right? So you first have ethics, um, and it's the good individual, the individual who, who is committed to the moral law that hopes that there is a God. And all religion, the understanding of religion is understood in terms of, of those moral demands, um, those moral commitments of the ethical individual. So he, he's going to say, you know, you can't have revelation first, um, aside from those ethical categories, because then what you would have is an individual relating to God just in terms of 
the divine power. And then all you are is, you know, you're sort of groveling and self-interested. It's only the individual that already has these moral commitments that can hope in, you know, uh, the goodness of God because they're already morally committed and they, and they know what goodness is, right? Um, and, they, and they're going to hope that there is a God that is the divine author of the world and makes the highest good possible. So this is, this is Kant. I'm not sure if I got... Well, I, there's a, so there's some term, and, and so the, for the first time reader of Kant, which I was not terribly long ago, uh, some of the lingo of Kant, which is stuff we use every day, like the word experience, like I've ta- I mean, I experienced driving my car, you know, it's something we commonsensically use that experience, you know, mm-hmm. but for, for, for Kant, um, experience, it is that, but there's a specific definition, a philosophical definition. Is it, is it what we sense is it everything gathered through sensual the scent the power of the i mean experience is going to be basically anything that is given uh, yes through the senses um but also we can talk about you know you can talk about experience as experience that is already has already been processed through the categories the point of the idea of experience is just again that it's a posteriori Okay, which a posteriori means um, it's it's after, right? Can you explain that? <laughs> it's something after. So it's it's contrasted with the a priori, which is that which as the a priori is that which is logically prior to you know whatever happens once the data of the senses um, come into play. So I, I always think, I mean, this maybe a an example of that would be like if I hold up three fingers, knowing that it's three, is that I, I pure, that came pretty a posteriori, right? yeah. Oh, that's a posteriori. That's the after word. Anything, okay. anything that awaits the verdict of experience is a posteriori. Okay. Okay. Um, and then now, and then anything that things like now you there's certain different kinds of the a priori. But one example of the a priori is the analytic a priori, which is basically just judgments that have to do with conceptual analysis. Okay. Such like, a, you know, all bachelors are unmarried. You don't have to go and find out if the bachelors are unmarried because... It's predicated on that in a way, right? It's just, you know, it's true in virtue of the concepts. Okay. Okay. And now Kant is going to say, though, that there's another kind of, you know that there are synthetic a priori judgments that are possible. And those synthetic a priori judgments are not true in virtue of just this conceptual analysis, but true in virtue of some third thing. Um, so you're making a judgment about, you know, the, the judgment is about some third thing. That's what brings the two predicates together. And that we can have that, we can have that kind of a priori knowledge. Um, and we do, we can have that kind of knowledge in virtue of the conditions of the possibility of experience, in virtue, in fact, of the, uh, you know, key to all of this is the fact that he thinks that space and time are what he calls a priori forms of intuition. Sure. And okay. that's what all our uh, perception is like filtered through, right? Uh, space and time are the two. Right. Uh, okay. They're forms of intuition, right? And so we, yeah. And okay. prior to any actual data, they okay. structure the data of experience. Um, so I know in your uh, 
in the summary you gave on Kant a little bit ago, and maybe this will be a segue into Schleiermacher. I don't know. I just, cause I, I want to like spend another moment on Kant. Um, we, we, you mentioned the metaphysical, you know, in the, in the beyond. And I know Kant has kind of a, uh, a two, uh, he has a, the premise of a, the phenomena and the noumena. Right. Phenomena is of course, you know, experience and noumena is, uh, you know, the thing in itself. Do you want to break that down for? Um, okay. So, I mean, so one has to be careful because when you're talking about phenomena and noumena, there are going to be distinctions between his use of phenomena versus noumena and thing in itself versus appearance. Mm -hmm. Because the noumena are already, they're very, they're, there's a very specific meaning to noumena and those are intelligible objects. Those are objects that are known only through the intellect, which for human cognition, that's not possible. Mm -hmm. right? human, human cognition is always, you know, also sensible cognition. So noumena are these, again, these intelligible objects to which we have no access, but the divine mind, you mm -hmm. know, if there's a divine mind, it would have access to noumena. And the phenomena are, um, they are basically, you know, the objects of our experience. Those are the phenomena and they are um, given in space and time. And they can be representative of what we don't have access to? Is that a... Mm. Okay, then we can talk about then the, what we can talk about. So we can talk about phenomena and noumena. Noumena are these intelli the, is the intelligible world, the objects of the intelligible world. Phenomena are is the world of our experience, and then we can talk about things in themselves and appearances. Now, appearances correlate do correlate pretty well to the phenomena. Mm -hmm. um, the thing in itself does not necessarily correlate exactly to the noumena because okay. the thing, things in themselves are just, he's going to say, unknown and unknowable. Okay. We posit that, so we have access to these, these appearings, and if something appears, he says, we must posit that there is, I mean, if there's appearance, if there are appearances, we must posit that there is something that appears Although, um, you know, we have, as I said, the thing in itself, he's going to say, is completely unknown and unknowable. We don't know what, anything about it. Mm -hmm. We do know, and this is a controversy in, in, um, in Kant um, uh, studies, you know, Kant says that we do know that things, the things in themselves are neither spatial nor temporal. And then people will say, well, if we don't, if the thing in itself is unknown and unknowable, how do you know? that it's neither spatial or, nor temporal. And he does have an answer to that. It's a, it's a you know, complicated answer. Sure. Um, but um, but that's, you know, that's where that is with the, the things in themselves is unknown and unknowable. Um, because, um, you know, what, what you get in the first critique is basically a critique of metaphysics and an analysis of what it is that reason, pure reason, is allowed to make claims about. And it winds up with a great agnosticism with regard to the issue of metaphysics. Right. right? All that we can know, in fact, are the phenomena. We cannot know anything about things in themselves. And we do not know. So, for instance, um, you know, we, we really 
have no knowledge of God um, or the soul or the world as a whole. We have, we don't know any, we can't make any claims, um, justified claims about these metaphysical objects. So he says famously in, I think it's in the introduction, I'm not sure if it's the preface or the introduction, he says that he must deny knowledge in order to make room for faith. Okay. Denies wow. knowledge in order to make room for faith. Um, so all of the speculations of the metaphysicians are out of the window. You know, they go out the window. And, um, but when he talks about faith, He's saying that um, it's through practical reason and the demands of practical reason that we can then say we are justified in believing, let's say, in freedom and in um, the immortality of the soul and in God. Is that related to the ought? Uh, the, uh, yes. I like mean, so one ought about- to have freedom. One, I mean, these abstract, I guess, moral things, right? I mean, Kant still arrives to that even though you can't have the claims about them in the same way that we have claims about the sensible experienced. Well, I mean, the, the ought is the moral law. So, and the idea is, um, I mean, this is, this is also controversial, but, but one of the ways in which he's presented as arguing in the second critique is that um, what you have, what you know is the moral law Right. Um, the the ought the ought is um, uh, you know so act as to treat humanity whether in thine own thine own, thine own person or in that of another um, never as a means only but always also always as an end in him or herself. That's the second formulation of the categorical imperative, and it's the easiest one to remember. But the idea is is that if this is an ought, then it also implies can, which means. Um, that you, you know, if, if this is a not, if, the, if this comes to you as an ought, then there's some way that we can say that, yes, you're free to be able to um, comply with this demand. That's okay. okay. So when we're doing practical philosophy, we can talk about theoretical philosophy on the one hand, and that would be like what's going on in the first critique. Practical philosophy is going to be um, everything having to do with, um, you know, morality, what, you know, what it is that I must do, what, we, what, we, what, what must I do, and what must I presuppose if I am going to achieve these, these things that I must do. Okay. Right? And now what, what happens with Kant is that he's going to say, he's going to be agnostic, you know, theoretical philosophy shows that we must be agnostic with regard to these ideas of God and the soul and freedom and so forth. But practical philosophy comes on the scene and says, um, you know, but there's this ought um, that you, that through your conscience, you're complete, you know, you're directly aware of, of the ought. Um, And practical philosophy has primacy. Calls, you know, he says that it has primacy, and therefore, because it has primacy, um, so long as theoretical philosophy tells you, you know, we don't know, you're justified in believing in these objects that practical philosophy demands that you believe in. Yeah, right. So things like faith, for instance, are 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 he can be completely inclusive of, provided that's uh, 
under the practical philosophy. Uh, right, right. I mean, it has to be a moral faith. Right. Um, so um, you mentioned that, uh, you know, when Kant uh, comes, does this thing, he dies, and then there's kind of two tracks of, uh, of he kind of sets two different trajectories of the way he's taken. Oh, uh, in our, yeah, sorry, in our pre-show convo, I remember you, you mentioned that, but uh, do you want to kind of mention what those two things entail? Okay, so in other words, the strategies for the reception of Kant, is that what we're, so how Yeah, well, I, I know you mentioned there was like the romantic uh, right. trajectory and then the idealist, and maybe those right. two, I think would be helpful maybe as we get into Schleiermacher. Right. Um, so there's two ways in which Kant is received. Um, one is going to be this trajectory that we can talk about with regard to Fichte, Schelling, Hegel, and this, and it all really, all of this has to do with um, that, the way that they're looking at paragraph 16 of the B deduction, um, because it has to do with how they're understanding self-consciousness. So we can talk about, I mean, the, the best way to maybe think about the differences is to think about the relationship between the self as, you know, what we can call maybe the, I don't, I don't, for lack of a better word, let's just call it like original consciousness, um, which is like, let's say, just talk about the actual activity of consciousness. We can talk about that activity and then we can talk about how the self reflects upon itself, right? So the idea is, you know, we make a distinction between the activity of thinking and then how you reflect that reflection on your activity, right? Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the I think that must be, account, must be able to accompany all my representations, that I think is already a reflected I. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's, you're, you're making yourself your own object, that self-consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so with regard to the, um, you know, Fichte, Schelling, Hegel, what they're, what they're going to be doing, and in particular, you get this in the theory of absolute mind in Hegel, is that they're going to be saying that that reflection, right, where mind makes itself its own, makes itself its own object, well, that's going to be necessary, of course, for the possibility of there even being mind, but mm -hmm. the idea is going to be that, you know, Hegel thinks that that reflection where the where mind becomes other to itself, that othering, that mind is complete, completely exhausts itself. And Fichte thinks that too, but not on the not on the scale of the absolute I, but on the scale of, of the I. That 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 the self is completely present to itself in its reflections. Right? Mm -hmm. And so especially with Hegel, what you get because the self is completely present to itself in its reflection and you, in its reflections. And you can talk about the um, activity of reason um, in relation to um, that self reflection, you're going to have this absolute and totalizing philosophy in Hegel where mind, you know, you have my absolute mind that becomes other to itself in, in, the, in nature and then in um, the activity of human spirit. So, so it's a totalizing philosophy and, and reason can penetrate everything. And that runs counter to what the romantics were really about? Right, right. Okay. Because the romantics, 
Um, beginning with, I suppose, you know, Holderlin had a very um, important little snippet um, that talks about how, um, th these are just fragments, but talks about how the, the I um, or the, let's say the original consciousness is always more than its reflections. And any kind of rationality depends on reflection, right? Reason depends on reflection, but since original consciousness is prior to reflection, original consciousness cannot be penetrated by thought. It okay. just is, um, it is, and it can be experienced, but not penetrated by thought. So it remains dark, a kind of enigma. And so this would be something that you have um, Jacoby, for instance, talking about already. Um, but this is one of the big themes of romanticism, that reason does not penetrate everything. Right. Um, and it probably, in many ways, this is probably more true to what um, Kant is doing. Because one of the things that happens, for instance, with Hegel, with Fichte already, is that they get rid of the thing in itself. Right. They think, no, mind can penetrate everything. There's nothing left over, mm -hmm. right? Um, whereas the romantics are going to stress, like even with the self, you know, the self is enigma, an enigma. It's dark to itself. Um, reason can't penetrate it. You can, you know, feel it. You can apprehend it through feeling. For the, mm -hmm. you know, there's an immediate awareness of the self, but um, but it's still, but that's all, right? So so you can't have a totalizing philosophy. Okay. And I know romanticism is kind of moving into Schleiermacher now. I know romanticism is seen as a uh, as a, a part influence on him. Um, I mean, there's well, many... He was, one of the, he was one of the roman. you know, he, he was one of the people that put forward romanticism. Sure. Well, and I, and I think I have the painting in my house. There's that classic painting where the, the guy's like standing his back to you, but there's, it's like a big, he's on a mountaintop and I don't remember if it's right. like uh, yeah. the Casper painting, right? right, if, right if someone, right. For, our, for our listeners, if they want to just kind of capture the spirit of romanticism, it's kind of right. Standing in awe of things, a lot of it's mysterious. The mind can't, right, 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 right. but it's still appreciated, right? Um, right, right. No, we can't penetrate it. Um, so, so Friedrich Schleiermacher has a several influences though. Do you want to kind of, it's now kind of moving into the, I know we spent a lot of time on Kant for our listeners, but <laughs> thank you for bearing with us. I know Kant's not everybody's, uh, you know, but, uh, now that we've kind of arrived to Friedrich Schleiermacher, uh, what's what, yeah. What are some of his, uh, some, some of his influences, I guess. You mean people that have influenced him? Or, uh, maybe people, or but I'm also just thinking just different currents of thinking, different, you know, uh, traditions at that time. I know he went to a, a oh, okay. pietist school of some okay, sort. So. Right, right. So, I mean, okay, so his dates are 1868 to 1834, and he's the son of a clergyman of the Reformed Church, um, and his earlier education was with the Moravian Brethren, um, and that's a strict pietist sect. Um, he, he eventually leaves them because he didn't, you know, believe everything um, they said. And he moves to the University of Halle in 1787, um, continues his studies in theology there. 
um, and philosophy and classical philology as minor fields. And so, I mean, important is that Schleiermacher is not only a theologian, he's also a philosopher and he was a, he was a great translator of Plato. I mean, his translations of Plato um, were very, very important. Actually, Julia Lamb just finished a book on, on Schleiermacher's Plato um, translations. Isn't he still like a standard as far as like yeah, a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, and his, and, and what, what influences Schleiermacher were, you know, he studies Kant, um, Spinoza's an influence on him, um, you know, a lot of the philosophical figures. Um, he's, in, he's, he's talking to Fichte or, you know, taking issue with a lot of things that Fichte is, is saying. So he's in, in that conversation of the post, you know, the post-Kantian, immediate post-Kantian philosophy. Okay. Those are his, um, you know, his conversation partners. Plato too, right? I mean, so he's got a lot of influences, a lot of philosophical influences. Um, and he's um, approaching the Christian religion and, and, and questions of faith from that um, philosophical background. And also, you know, with in my, questions in mind of what was going on at, at that time, um, you know, in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century with questions regarding faith. Um, all of that biblical scholarship is beginning um, or, you know, or continuing. And this, brings a lot of doubts to people's minds, you know, um, how can we believe, how, how can we, you know, what is the meaning of all of this? What is, what is the meaning of revealed religion? Does it have any meaning, right? Mm -hmm. um, should we just be satisfied with natural religion? Sure. Right? Oh yeah. I know that was a big enlightenment thing, mm -hmm. natural religion. Um, yeah. This, uh, you know, that's fascinating, fascinating. Um, fascinating time period right all the uh um i feel like people just kind of felt uh you know it was like an age of exploration in a way of exploring all these things but uh so schleiermacher his he had two principal works that i that are normal i mean he, he wrote several things but there's two kind of two big ones on religion and also later the christian faith on religion's much earlier Right. I mean, it, so it appears, and it's a very important little book. The first edition appears in 1799, and um, then it has several subsequent editions, 1806, 1821, and 1831. So it's called Unreligion Speeches to Its Cultured Despisers. And, I, um, and it sounds like an apologetic work of some sorts, because it, it seems like he's, he's it, it's a critique of... Um, kind of the crowds he was hanging out with, right? In a way. Well, he's, I mean, so one of the things that's going on in On Religion is he's certainly responding to Kant and to the metaphysicians. So there's several things. So in response to Kant, so one of the, okay, one of the phrases that you find in On Religion um, that is often quoted is that religion is not a mess of um, metaphysical and ethical crumbs. Mm -hmm. So he's going to accuse Kant of thinking that religion is a bunch of ethical crumbs. Mm -hmm. Because for Kant, you know, as we talked about right. earlier, you first 
begin with morality and then morality leads to religion. So he's got some differences with, cause I know Kant kind of, like you said, throws metaphysical speculation as something of that, of the old time religion. We don't need it anymore. But then Schleiermacher says, well, also the, the seeing it as, as ethical too. I mean, Schleiermacher kind of re- rejects both, right? <laughs> well, he's, he's going to, Schleiermacher is going to say against Kant, See, because one of the things is, you know, to think about like, you know, um, the disciplines, let's think about how, how, what are the relationships of the disciplines to one another? Mm-hmm. And for Kant, right, he's, he's already done all of that clearing with, with the theoretical philosophy, but let's not worry about that. Let's worry about um, the practical philosophy and its relation to religion. For mm-hmm. Kant, you first have the practical philosophy that leads to religion, okay? Or, you know, you, or you have to think of religion in relation to the ethical. Mm-hmm. Schleiermacher is going to say, this is what Schleiermacher says is on religion. The most important field in philosophy from which you must start is the field of religion. Mm, okay. So instead of having ethics and then, you know, somehow religion being derived from ethics or even... Other philosophers, like, let's say, I don't know, the, the rationalists, mm-hmm. continental rationalists, who think that they're doing, you know, they're doing the speculative philosophy and coming up with all sorts of ideas of God and so forth. Those are the, those are the metaphysical crumbs that he's talking about, okay. right? So he's talking against Kant and, and against, let's say, any of those continental rationalists um, that that thought that they could do, um, you know, proofs for God's existence and come up with the character of God and, you know, do all sorts of things. He says, no, no, no. You know, religion is not derived from metaphysics. Religion is not derived from ethics against Kant. Religion is what he calls, let's say, sui generis. It is you know, it stands on its own. It's not derivative in any way. And in fact, if you really understand religion, then everything else, the metaphysics and the ethics, all of those are actually fields that develop from this most fundamental field of religion. And so the, so the field of religion, which he says can stand on its own, um, and um, this might not be the best wording for it, but he kind of, he identifies the essence of that as uh, any any and all things religious that we experience and know proceed from a feeling, if, what he calls a feeling of absolute dependence. I know he develops this further in Christian faith, but I, I believe it, it's introduced right. to non-religion, right? Well, he doesn't use the he doesn't use the term the feeling of absolute dependence, and so there's going to be some differences between what's going on in on religion and what's going on in the Christian faith. Because on religion really maybe is maybe a little more more of a philosophical text. Um, the idea that he has there is, and here he's in conversation with Fichte, is it's an analysis of consciousness. And um, he thinks that there's this moment of consciousness that is prior to the split where the self becomes conscious of itself and its reflections, right? 
Like an original unity, right? I think I remember. There's an original unity of consciousness. Um, you know, before that, sub, you know, before the self reflects on itself and becomes aware of itself as an I. And notice that when the self becomes aware of itself as an I, it also becomes aware of a world over against the I, right? You become aware of yourself, self-conscious of yourself in relation to a world different from yourself. So that, so there's this moment that's prior to the subject object split um, where you have this, the self is in utter unity with everything that is. Um, and that is the moment of religion for him. Okay. Everything proceeds from that. And um, this moment is, is somehow a moment also that is like, it's a moment that that is really really where you can find or where, where the ground of the soul is somehow present in this moment and the and here the self the soul is at one with everything so there's a kind of you know he was accused of spinacism um he also talks about you know lock of the holy spinoza in religion so um so there's issues with the way that he um puts things here let me just I mean, if you don't mind, I'll read you one of the very most famous passages from the second speech where he talks about this moment. And notice one of the things, too, when he talks about this moment prior to the subject-object split, he talks about it in terms of intuition and feeling. So he's not going to be talking about it in terms of, um, you know, knowledge, but rather in terms of feeling. And so when we talk about feeling, we're talking about the states of the self that feel and intuition is, is that is, is basically you have an intuition of an object through feeling. Mm -hmm. So it's that pr moment prior. It's that moment prior to intuition and feeling that he's talking about. Okay. So this is what he says here. Um, this is from the second speech. Um, and he says this, this, that first mysterious moment that occurs in every sensory perception uh, before intuition and feeling have separated where sense and its objects have as it were flowed into one another and become one before both turn back to their original position. I know how indescribable it is and how quickly it passes away, but I wish that you were able to hold on to it and also to recognize it again in the higher and divine religious activity of the mind. Would that I could and might express it, at least indicate it, without having to desecrate it. It is as fleeting and transparent as the first scent with which the dew gently caresses the waking flowers, as modest and delicate as a maiden's kiss, as holy and fruitful as a nuptial embrace. It need not like these, but is itself all of these. A manifestation, an event develops quickly and magically into an image of the universe, even as the beloved and ever sought for form fashions itself, my soul flees towards it. I embrace it not as a shadow, but as the holy essence itself. I lie on the bosom of the infinite world. At this moment, I am its soul, for I feel all its powers and its infinite life as my own. At this moment, it is my body, for I penetrate its muscles and its limbs as my own, and its innermost nerves move according to my sense and my presentiment as my own. 
With the slightest trembling, the holy embrace is dispersed. And now for the first time, the intuition stands before me as a separate form. I survey it and it mirrors itself in my open soul like the image of, a of the vanishing beloved in the awakened eye of a youth. Now for the first time, the feeling works its way up from inside and diffuses itself like the blush of shame and desire on his cheek. This moment is the highest flowering of religion. If I could create it in you, I would be a God. May holy fate only forgive me that I have had to disclose more than the Eleusinian mysteries. So very, that's a very, very beautiful poetic thing. writer. Yes. And um, <laughs> I remember he, he, he wrote a little more like that in non religion. It was uh, while the Christian faith was a bit more uh, systematic. Um, right. And he speaks of religion as a flowering. I mean, it starts as something inward but right. like it begin, it's all religion it, it begins in consciousness right yeah. and it's it's going to be there at the ground so it's at the ground of the soul right that religion is really uh you know is born okay and, and it's at the ground of the soul that you have that moment at the ground of the soul before you know before that separation between mm -hmm feeling into an intuition. But when we, when we, when you do have the separation, you get reflection upon it. And that is from, and this will echo Schleiermacher's later, or this is echoed in Schleiermacher's later works. That's where you get, well, you get worship, then you get doctrines, you get the language and the symbols associated with religion, right? It all proceeds initially from that Right. All right. I mean, you, it begins with the religious, that's the fundamental religious experience and the fundamental religious experience occurs within consciousness itself where the individual somehow, you know, is going to, to um, have that experience at the ground of the soul, so to speak, um, before that subject object split. Okay. Uh, and that, would, that's going to be, you know, the, the account that you have of that moment is different in on religion than in, in the Christian faith. They're, they're this, I think he's getting at the same thing, um, but they're definitely described pretty differently. Okay. Um, and on consciousness, shifting gears a little bit, but because I know obviously um, he's, he's speaking, he speaks to Christian, he's a Christian theologian, I mean, he's many things, but he's a Christian theologian, so bringing Jesus into the picture now. Um, he, you know, how does his concept of consciousness relate to, to Jesus and who he is? So you have to go, I mean, really, to really get a good account, you have to go back, go to the Christian faith for this. And in the Christian faith, he's going to be talking about this, uh, the, what he calls the immediate self-consciousness. So going back to this idea that the romantics have that, the self is not something that can be completely captured in reflection. Um, the self is fully accessible to itself only in that immediate moment, uh, immediate self-consciousness. Now notice that this is, when he talks about the immediate self-consciousness, there is already, there is already self-consciousness but it is going to be the ground of both the original conscious and its consciousness and its reflections. That's the immediate self-consciousness. So it depends upon your already being able to reflect. Mm -hmm. It depends. I mean, it, 
it depends on its for its existence on your already being able to reflect, but it's not something that can be captured through reflection. It's again that immediate presence of the self to itself. So it's an immediate self presence. It cannot be known rationally, um, but it can only be known through a kind of self feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that immediate that moment of immediacy of self-feeling what you the self feels itself as as conditioned as finite and as not the source of its own existence so it feels itself as absolutely dependent Mm -hmm. and and then what so that's what it feels it has direct access it has immediate access to itself as absolutely dependent as conditioned and then it posits, it must posit that upon which it's absolutely dependent. And that's God. Okay. Um, so, um, and, and so the idea is going to be that it is through the God consciousness, right? So the self is absolutely dependent. The, the self can accept itself as absolutely dependent and in doing so allows the divine light to come through it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And what is sin for Schleiermacher? It's going to be a blocking of the God consciousness. So what is Christ? Christ is uh, Jesus is the individual who is perfectly able to express the God consciousness because he completely accepts the absolute dependence. Okay. It's a, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a, it's an interesting, like re it's like different, totally different categorical language than what you, you get in Southern, like more classical Christological talk on Jesus or traditionally, but it, it, I mean, yeah, I mean, you can, Jesus is the best, right? He's the, perfect one <laughs> so it kind of, well, I mean, kind of he, fully, he fully expresses the divine light okay so there's yeah. a sense in which i mean there's no blockage there's no ego there no ego that blocks the divine consciousness but he's the the human personality is completely dependent on on the god consciousness mm-hmm. right and fully expresses it okay and that's why that's that's who, who Christ is, and it's through his consciousness, right? This mm-hmm. perfect God consciousness that he has, that he imparts this perfect God consciousness to others, that he that he redeems. Mm-hmm. Um. So, and I know we're we're getting close to time here, but I wanted to ask you another thing. So I'll, I'll preface this with saying, so uh, we don't have time to get into it, but there's been uh, you. Uh, for our listeners, of course, uh, there are some perhaps caricatures or certain narratives about Schleiermacher um, that have arose over the years. Uh, Bart is kind of, um, and I love Carl Bart, but he's you know he's responsible for one of them. But um, I mean, take take that take that as you will. We have you know uh, listeners of different uh, churchmanships, ideological ideological leanings, whatever. But uh, but so Schleiermacher, he's he's gotten some critique in certain areas and one that I always feel that emerges as far as critique of him. It, it, it's, it's like, um, that almost like, uh, the, the certainty of, of knowing God is even there is somehow denied. That's kind of a very, but even though it's, that it's 
not fair to say that of him, but one can get that impression, right? Because if you get, you know, with, with, uh, with, well, you know, going back to con- the whole things we have access to versus things we don't have access to um, is as far as like revealed religion, is it something we can trust anymore? You know, so there's a lot of that. Obviously there's a lot of that. Um, you know, Schleiermacher had some, he was controversial for a reason as well as many other people who've had a controversial aspect about them. But I know you've written about um, how, and and I, I know it was an article we talked, but you haven't read in a long time. But but basically, I remember you posing that you know Schleiermacher, similarly to Aquinas, who's a pre-modern you know classical theist, uh, that there have to be conditions for what we experience as real. And um, so you were kind of you're you're you drew kind of a similarity with Schleiermacher and some other theologians of the past who said that you know. We do, we, we don't have access to God like directly, perfectly, but you know, I know like a, a, going back to Augustine, he said we can at least speak of God in analogy and so and so. And, uh, you know, unlike uh, you mentioned how John Hick has a, John Hick used an example as like someone with a totally, um, totally skeptical attitude that, um, ultimately that we can't know if there's a God behind anything at all. And you'd say, no, Schleiermacher actually is very much a realist. Oh, that. you mean the higher realism? Yeah. Just, uh, I mean, I guess, uh, how can we, the question was going, well, yeah, there was a lot there and I wanted, I didn't know how to phrase it into one simple question. I kind of rambled a bit, but how is, so I, yeah, yeah. How is Schleiermacher different from that skepticism that we see in like John Hick? Cause you use John Hick as an example of like, you know, not, not knowing, anything for sure but Schleiermacher does believe in I mean mean, okay so I um so Schleiermacher is going to say that is going to talk about the effects of the God consciousness on the individual Mm -hmm. and also I mean and 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 we have that you're going to have that um community communion with Christ He's going to talk about the person forming activity of Christ as he imparts his God consciousness. And that is going to have effects in the ethical sphere for Schleiermacher. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that answers your question because there were so many, you had the Bart issue. That's one issue. Then there's the, the Hick. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I suppose the, the, kind of the, Hick comes up with the issue of religious pluralism um, where, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to remember now because I hadn't, I haven't looked at that in a while, but, but I suppose that he's much more um, agnostic about like whether we can talk about one religion being better than another. Whereas I think sure. Schleimer is definitely going to say, yeah, no, you there, we can say that, you know, some religions are nearer and others are farther, even though wow. all of them, all of them he's going to say have some, relation to the absolute right right all expressions of it to some degree but there's going to be some that are better and some that are that are not as good right right so i'm not sure if that answers your question because well, you i think you spoke to it, I, I think you you i remember in the article you, you wrote a lot about causality that ultimately um and this would go against some of the people that have more of an anti- metaphysical read of Schleiermacher or those who say, or say he's complete, uh, he's completely anthro. Um, oh, I mean, okay. Out, you know. <laughs> um, 
So there, with regard to the issue of causation, that has to do with the question of freedom and whether, so there's, there's like people like Andrew Dull who read Schleiermacher as a determinist. Okay. And there's different kinds of determinism. There's natural determinism and, and um, Dull reads him as a kind of natural determinist and I don't read him that way. Okay. Um, so um, I think that because he has so much of an emphasis on transcendental consciousness, um, it always does transcend, you know, it, it's always going to be something that is not itself completely ensconced within nature. Okay. I'm not sure if that was the issue that, you know, there's a lot of different issues. And so with the issue of causation, that's one of the, you know, some people read him as a, as, as a kind of spinocist. And I read him more in line with Kant, um, where again, the self or consciousness um, transcends natural causation. That's not to say that there may be other kinds of determinism, like in terms of God's wisdom or something, mm -hmm. but that's different than natural causality. Okay. You're right. Yeah. No, I think that, does, I mean, uh, for our listeners, I mean, uh, if I guess a good place to start would be picking, I mean, I think uh, Species on Religion is a shorter work than Christian faith, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, if you want a more poetic and sometimes polemical work you go to there if you want a more systematic work go to christian faith right, right. um there's good i mean i think uh dr marinia richard crowder terence tice or yeah i'm just thinking of some it's been a while since i've but i i know for for a brief period kind of early on in my stm studies i was kind of fascinated because with with schleimacher like i said earlier he's, he's kind of maybe an obscure name at best in some theological circles and ministry circles. Um, uh, but uh, also, I, I guess, like uh, what you were saying in our kind of our pre-show conversation, Dr. Marini, he has a kind of a following in German philosophical circles, if I remember correctly. Yeah, and, the and theology, too. Yeah, I mean, theology, so, too, yeah. And so, is, so. Right. His uh, reception in, I guess, the Anglo-American world, uh, it's, it, there's been, it's been very different from what I get. Right. And I think, you know, a lot of Bardians, you know, don't like him. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, so, so, I mean, with regard to theology, one last thing is important to, to recognize with regard to Schleiermacher is that for him, everything is, begins with consciousness and, and the experience, you know, the inner experience mm -hmm. that's primary. And then that gets whatever that inner experience then gets expressed in the poetic and the rhetorical in song and in you know poetry and then only later at the you know only after that do you get doctrine so doctrine is really almost like a third or order thing right? third order of things yeah yeah i mean in terms of like you don't begin with the doctrines you begin with the experience mm -hmm. with the, the experience in commute in the community uh the church community and the person forming activity of christ um and then um this experience is going to get expressed in symbols. Mm -hmm. And then only then, you know, do you try to sort of understand all of this and systematize it. So doctrine becomes very, um, you know, something that is not as, uh, you know, black and white. Um, yeah. Well, I think maybe not as crucial 
Um, and that's maybe what have upset some. I know Bart was an early, I mean, I consider myself a, a, a Bartian sometimes. I don't agree with Bart on everything. I don't agree with Schleimacher on anything either. But uh, I think, I mean, Bart kind of had a more of a people debate on his theological biography, but he was kind of a dialectic at first. And, but he gets very dog, uh, or he gets very focused. He, he gets very, uh, he puts an emphasis on doctrine in his later works and his most prolific work. And I think it's really where you see him uh, totally just done with the, the Schleiermacher, uh, with Schleiermacher. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, are all his crit- criticisms fair? I mean, that's a question everyone will have to answer for themselves. You know, re- there's a book was, I think it's called beyond the, um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think of what it was called, but it's a book on, on Barton Schleiermacher and they interviewed several people in there. Uh, Terrence Tice interviewed Carl Bart in that. Um, and it's just a funny, people are trying to maybe see where some of their points of, some of their points of thinking actually uh, meet and can complement each other. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I, I, both are very, both have a, a lot going on in their, what they write and what they say and what they do over time. And so, I mean, I, I always... Sometimes when we, if we, if we pit one person against another, sometimes it's just, <laughs> it's, it's not exactly even that simple. So I just encourage our listeners just to, if you're curious on Schleiermacher or Bart or, you know, go just read it yourselves. And <laughs> if you if you dare, <laughs> some of the works yeah. are very uh, heavy, but. Uh, I mean, Bart's criticism of Schleiermacher was that he, he think Bart thinks that, that Schleiermacher reduces Christianity into anthropology, which is mm-hmm. just, I mean, that he begins with these anthropological categories and then he builds his theology on the basis of those. Um, mm-hmm. That's his critique. Yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, you can get into a lot of issues there, but um, I, I, I mean, there, there's just so much you can say about this. I disagree completely because I think you do have to begin with like, you know, human experience. Otherwise, how are you going to even understand this? It doesn't make any sense. What is, you know, what, how, what's the cash value of these doctrines if you don't bring it back into your life or into people's lives and make sense of them in, in relation to that? So, um, but anyway, that's, that's, that is what his, Bart's basic, um, uh, critique of, of Schleiermacher is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember reading more Bart's critique of Hermann, who, which I remember trying to translate out of the, trying to translate out of Fraktur German, that I realized there was English trans. I mean, I, I was like a, I had like, you know, days to translate this and c- use it as one source in a paper. And then I realized there's an English translation of this essay the whole time in some book. <laughs> and so, uh, but it got me, I guess, uh, working on my German. So, but, uh, but, and I, and through that critique of Hermann, I, I kind of, you get kind of his critique of Schleiermacher secondhand. Um, and so I don't know, I, I, you know, like I said, I mean, for our listeners, you know, read and, and listen, you know, read primary and secondary sources and, and kind of determine for yourself, but it does help to listen to people who've been reading and studying it a lot longer. Uh, like our guest, Dr. Mourinho. So we definitely appreciate you have, having you on the show. And uh, before we go, is there, any, is there anything you're working on that we can uh, stay uh, <laughs> be on the lookout for? <laughs> um, right now I'm working on Kant. So I'm working on, I'm almost done with a book on 
on Kant's um, and the relationship between Kant's groundwork and the second critique. So it's kind of, you know, it's a kind of a scholarly um, issue, um, whether a lot of American, and this th this comes from Dieter Henry, Germ you know, a German philosopher who re read Kant in a particular way and started this view that Kant had changed his mind um, from the writing of groundwork, uh, of the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals to um, his writing of the second critique, and I'm taking issue with that, um, the great reversal reading. So that's okay. what that book is going to be about. And it's it's mostly on Kant's ethics. Um, so, I've, so I'm working on that and also on stuff on Kant's religion. So Okay. Well, be it for our Kantians out there, our, our, Kant, uh, our Kant fans. I don't know what, they, what you call them. I guess Conti is uh, be on the lookout for that. Um, we really appreciated you having you on the show. Um, and uh, we will uh, love to have you back sometime. If you ever want to talk more on, on any of these topics of, of interest you have and things you've worked and worked on and contributed to. So thank you, uh, Dr. Mourinho. We'll, uh, and we will, uh, we, we will see you again. So. <laughs> having me on the show yeah thank you have a great day I'll... hi and thank you for listening this is reverend andrew christensen again i hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of doth protest too much if you're listening to us on apple podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show please do so five stars one star however you honestly feel we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.